0: If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than four billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at SharesPost.com/equity.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises, and I am joined this week by TechCrunch's Danny Crichton. Hi. Hi, Danny. CrunchBase News' is Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And also, for a special treat this week, we have Bubba Mararka, a founder-turned-VC-turned-Rogue individual investor. Bubba, thank you so much for coming.
2: Thanks for having me, Tony.
1: <laughs> so last week, as listeners know, we talked at length about Lyft and its announcement that it had filed confidentially for an IPO. Well, it turns out that basically as soon as we put down our microphones and left the studio, news broke that Uber had filed confidentially for a an IPO last week, too. So guys, what? what? What do we think of this very fun race we have on our hands? I
0: just can't believe they dropped so soon to one another. I mean, this implies they've been uh, planning this for months and months and months and months. You can't drop an S1 overnight by accident. You have had to have done the homework, got your books in shape, had the accountants going through and yelling at you for some period of time. Um, My only question is, did they have it so prepped they could just pull the trigger or will these actually so timed uh, close together by accident? I don't know that answer, but it's a fun time. It's an interesting question if they had been holding them back
2: to, to put them in around the same time or when they got the signal, because generally speaking, uh, it was probably well known to the circles that mattered, uh, you know, what each of the companies was thinking about. I can't help but to think about how when Visa and MasterCard went public, uh, there was a bunch of jockeying back and forth between the two of them. Uh, and ultimately, I believe MasterCard. Went first, and I think some of the execs from Visa to this day say uh, that was a huge advantage for Visa because they got to understand Mastercard's business um, before they before they went out.
1: What was the difference? I mean, I'm sorry. What was the time difference? Was I it months? Or was it weeks? I
2: think it was. Uh, I think the filings were fairly close to each other. I think Mastercard probably went out months, but I don't have the dates off the top of my head. I just uh, remember that bit of the story.
0: But the world moved more slowly back then. I feel like months was a short period of time. <laughs> you had two Now we're like, well, it was a whole day apart, guys. I mean, like that's not that bad.
3: Well, and things- also you have uh, confidential filings now, right? So so both have now confidentially filed. So the SEC is giving them feedback without them having to share the S1 to the public. Um, so that's also a little bit different than back then.
0: No, for sure. For sure. Uh, I'm curious, though, about who now actually pulls the trigger first and goes and files it publicly. Now it's kind of a game of chicken in some capacity. Um, I just can't wait to see how close the numbers that are eventually reported in these S1s match what they've been telling us all along. And I can't wait to figure out which bits they've been, uh, you know, tweaking along the way.
1: Also has Lyft announced who's going to lead its public offering?
0: Yes, I believe so. I will look that up right okay,
1: now. Okay, great, great. Because in the meantime, Uber has uh, selected Morgan Stanley, which is a big deal, especially since we're talking about potentially a $120 billion IPO. That's a lot of um, fees for the bank to collect. Uh, and it is a win for Morgan Stanley banker Michael Grimes, who, uh, as Bloomberg notes, has become the go-to advisor for many uh, of Silicon Valley's largest IPOs and somewhat famously apparently had been sort of driving um Ubers around town to kind of um, win a curry favor with the company. Yeah.
0: On the left side though, it's going to be uh, JPMorgan Chase uh, oh. that will lead along with Credit Suisse and uh, Jeffrey's Group and some other smaller bankers and smaller roles, but that's going to be their core group. Uh, it seems like everyone wants a piece of the pie of these multi-tens of billions of dollars worth of IPO that are coming out. It's going to be a hell of a year.
1: Yeah. but Before we move on, Bubba, what do you think? Do you think people are going to want to buy one of these companies? I mean... Putting yourself in this sort of role of, you know, public market shareholder. Do you yeah. do you want stakes in both of these companies? Does that it, make sense?
2: It's a great question. I think when I think about the companies, that I actually think they're pretty different from each other as they've evolved. You know, Uber having much more of the global perspective and frankly having a huge business in Uber Eats mm-hmm. and Lyft being much more of a pure play U.S. Uh, transportation opportunity. Right. Uh, I actually, you know. Probably would want to own a little, uh, a bit of both stock. And, you know, you kind of see, uh, SoftBank certainly has taken that, uh, to a whole nother level as far as at a global level. And, and it'd be very interesting to see if once there's liquidity, if they would pick up some of Lyft shares in the public markets, uh, it would be an interesting move on their part, but wouldn't put it past them.
0: I mean, I, what I'm also excited about, sorry to keep on this topic, but like, I think if you combine Lyft's Q3 losses and Uber's Q3 losses, it's like $1.3 billion or something like that. How much of that can they clean up before they, uh, they go out? Because their first earnings report can't be, well, it's Uber here, Q2, 19. We lost a billion dollars. Like, you can't do that. So
1: I don't know. Maybe it can. I mean, Amazon lost money for how many years? I mean, I know it's sort of.
0: Not that many. If you go back and read Amazon's Mm -hmm. S1, its losses are in the tens of millions per quarter, if Mm -hmm. I recall correctly. Not the billion dollar plus net loss, 12 years and 25 billion in equity debt and whatnot of funding. It's a staggering amount of loss. You can't go public with that, maybe. Or not the valuation you want, at least. Not at 120 billion.
1: I have no idea. Nothing makes sense anymore. Anymore. That's true. You don't get a 30X multiple on your
0: losses, I don't think is how the valuation doesn't work. Anyways, we should move on uh, to what's next. Well, one last question or
2: one last thought. I, I just thinking how crazy it would be because there's a, a whole nother bumper crop that's going to come up after this in the on-demand world, the the DoorDashes, the Instacarts, you know, who knows how far yes. or close they are, but uh, I couldn't help but to think, yeah, Postmates. Mm. Uh, it would be uh, very interesting if uh, there was some sort of tie up between either DoorDash and or postmates, uh, with Lyft, especially as they're Ooh. trying to figure out ways to, uh, bolt on what is clearly sure. a really big growth driver. So, you know, on your point on the, uh, the, the losses kind of getting smaller, uh, or sorry, the losses being large, uh, in the public markets, I kind of wonder if the growth story and the, the size of market opportunity are going to allow them to do things that we don't think
0: is normal. Uh, in, you know, kind of at least the last five years. Yeah, I bet I bet Connie's right. I bet I'm being too conservative. I'm consistently too conservative for the market, so I, I bet.
1: Well, there's also new reporting that I shouldn't even bring up right now because I, I, I don't know the specifics, but I think there was sort of a, the suggestion this week uh, that, uh, you know, they're not going to get that growth potentially from the scooters that they thought they were going to. Um, so... Yeah. It, it, I mean, if they
0: don't buy Lime, if they don't buy Bird, they're going to be leaving that segment aside. Investors want to know what their strategy is for scooters, which are a very high cost and high capital requirement investment. Right. So and, it's going to be a fun time. But also you got to go public sometime. It's been a kajillion years. They've raised a kajillion dollars. Let's do this. We'll see what the valuation they go out at. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Share's Post. We should leave our shores and go across the seas because Luckin uh, raised another chunk of money, and this is one of my favorite companies, and uh, Dan's going to walk us through it. So, D, what's okay. Rockin'?
3: Yeah, if you were to talk about a company that does not make sense, uh, I think <laughs> Luckin Co- Coffee is definitely at the top of that list. So, this is, this is a coffee chain in China – that launched in January. So, you know, 11, 12 months ago, um, they raised two hundred million at a billion post uh, in July, and we just found out in the last few, two days that they raised another two hundred million dollars at two point two billion dollar valuation uh, this week. And what's nuts is in that eleven month period, they have now expanded to a thousand seven hundred stores in twenty one cities in eleven months. So, if you're, if you're doing the math, that's almost six to seven stores a day. Um, how? How, how know, does since the beginning of the year,
0: Danny? How do they do uh, that?
3: Parallelization, (laughs) Uh, but it's really like there's Silicon Valley scale and there's China scale. I I think we've never seen anything grow quite this quickly.
0: Do we have any idea about the health of these individual stores? Because I've always read the same numbers: big money going in, big valuations, big store numbers. I've never seen someone report same store sales, same store sales growth. You know margins, anything about financial health? I've only heard about gross kind of revenue, and I'm curious how this is bearing on the market itself. Well, well Alex,
3: I, I think one of the challenges—if you think like same store growth—usually you do year over year, uh, and right. the company's 11 months old, so right. well, <laughs> it's going to have a hell of hopefully a. Hopefully, next variety. year. <laughs> also, Alex, I
2: think maybe you would be better uh, talking to the Berkshire Hathaway style investors based on the metrics you're looking for.
0: Oh, that's that's by the way, if you didn't get that, that was a burn. Um, <laughs> that's so that's an investor joke. Um, <laughs> I I will say, though, that uh, when you look at the the Starbucks comp, which is what this will be valued against, it's not Silicon Valley multiples. And so I think that my Berkshire Hathaway style thinking here is much closer to the truth than your angel investing pixie does. But a great team, big market. I'm all in.
1: Yeah, I don't know. But it's a great question. I mean, it is it is stunning to think that these stores are being opened so quickly. I guess they're sort of being built kind of in close proximity to each other and, you know, like maybe a sort of a fewer number of cities. I'm not really sure, but it's it's interesting. The um the target uh, sort of demographic is, you know, white collar Chinese millennials. Uh, according to Goldman Sachs report, nearly 70 percent of its customers are younger than 30 years old compared to Starbucks, um, which I guess half of its customers are um uh, Thirty years or younger, uh, but it's interesting. You know, in addition to growing so quickly, there's a delivery component here, which has got to be like incredibly costly. Alex, have you? Did well,
0: you I know just this? know the delivery is an important part of their growth and how they approach the market. Uh-huh. So, Starbucks has been on the in the in the states, for example, has ordered. Uh, sorry, added uh, mobile ordering a bit later on, but. Starbucks doesn't really do deliveries. I think they do through Postmates or something like that. But Luckin, my understanding is that it's been kind of predicated on mobile and uh, and delivery as key components of the business. And that's, I think, helped it grow very, very quickly. Because these stores then are a bit more like distro hubs as opposed to just uh, foot traffic installations, uh, which gives them a lot more potential reach per store. So maybe their revenue is even bigger than I would have thought.
1: Not to sound like a knucklehead, but do, do we know if people socialize at coffee shops like they do in the US?
0: I mean, in China. Yeah. So um, is that, I'm
1: just wondering if that's sort of a, a reason why like they're such a big focus. On delivery versus,
3: I think they do. And, and mm-hmm. even more than that, even if you think about the size of apartments in Asia, I mean, I spent two years living in South Korea, for instance, which had mm-hmm. a full coffee boom and then a bust. Um, mm-hmm. You know, tens of thousands of coffee shops were open in Seoul, Busan and other large uh, Korean cities. Um, there, there is no infrastructure, right? Uh, offices are small apartments. It's really hard to invite people over to an apartment that's 90 square feet. And so coffee shops really are at least in the Korean context, and I imagine in China as well, a, a social status uh, fixture as well. Um, but, you know, but Starbucks is actually priced. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, Danny, but I was gonna say, but there's sort of like, it's sort of a newer phenomenon there, right? I mean, it's not that they wouldn't meet at restaurants, but coffee shops themselves are somewhat new. I mean, I know Starbucks has been there for a long time, but I'm just wondering if the coffee culture is not sort of you know, I think it's very, uh, very cultures. new. And, and
3: and there was a, te- there was a tea culture, right? So it, there is also this sort of complete rise of a new market uh, it, for consumers in China around coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it started in the large cities and now it's expanding, um, not just in Beijing and Shanghai. It looks like they're, you know, for luck in that's 21 cities, but you know, each of these cities has millions of people as well. So. Yeah.
2: I mean, and it's interesting just to see again, domestic brands in China have such a large opportunity. Sure. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, They've always had unfair, potentially unfair uh, comp- c- uh, competitive dynamics, but uh, I, from my understanding of Luckins, you know, they you can only buy via uh, an app on your phone, you know, and I think the the most aggressive place in the U.S. that allows that is Sweet, uh, sweet Greens. And mm-hmm. I know it's like very controversial. Uh, and so I, I think there's probably I, I am curious about their economics, their unit economics, and how they differ because between delivery, between only ordering an app, between having micro stores, because I understand they also have two or three stores in like a single mall. Okay. One per, per right, floor, right. That would make sense. Um, you know, it, it seems like there's probably a pretty dramatically different business. And I, I think last I, I read, I don't know how up to date this is, Starbucks is about four and a half bucks for a latte in China, and Luckin is about three and a and so okay. it's not... Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, call it a third, a 20%, 25% uh, lower uh, cost. But if they've wrung out all the costs of having people in the stores, letting people actually even hang out in the stores, mm-hmm. therefore having smaller rent, mm-hmm. it could actually be uh, a very interesting model for, as Danny was talking about, uh, much more uh, highly dense, highly populated urban centers. Yeah.
0: Also, coffee is just fantastic. So I think everyone should have as much access to it <laughs> they possibly need. Uh, I was emailing with uh, a woman in China who's around my age about this, and she said, and this is just what she told me. So I can't, you know, back it up more than that. But among uh, younger generations, coffee is incredibly popular. So we, I think we think about tea culture and whatnot, but I think we're behind the change in culture around uh, caffeinated beverages in Asia, which is, as you said, is a China-skill market. So, um, But let's scoot next to uh, Plaid, keeping the, uh, the big round focus uh, of the show today. Plaid raised uh, $250 million. Which was a huge amount of money, it brought their total raised capital to three hundred nine point three million. Which means this round was by far the majority of what they raised today, at least according to uh, to Crunchbase. And uh, putting this in context, this uh, Kleiner uh, led round dwarfs their previous round, which was forty four million led by uh, Goldman Sachs. That's back in June of sixteen, uh, so a little over two years ago.
1: Did they talk about the valuation?
0: They did. So the post-money on this 250 million dollar round is 2.65 billion, according to various media reports that I kind of collated. Okay. but everyone seems to agree. So call it 2.6, 2.7. It's a hell of a round. And after a two-year gap from their Series uh, B, this is a, a great return. It looks like for investors in those preceding rounds, because companies that raise this much at that high of valuation, at this amount of time, pretty bullish signals all around. Unless I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, everything is a moment in time, right? Like you can remember
2: ship raising a huge round. Um, you can uh, remember or any number of huge rounds kind of come and go. So I think it's really are they building a durable business when I think about it. And so Plaid's interesting because uh, creating the API interface into banks um, and doing the the business development work to have those relationships with banks and be able to understand their priorities while still servicing uh, startups uh, and other folks looking to innovate uh, certainly uh, would remind me of things like a Twilio, right, doing the business development work with a carrier and then kind of making sure the product was the one that uh, technology innovators would want to use. Stripe is another example of that. So there's clearly like some analogies to large uh, large private companies that seem like they have a path to going public uh, uh, in one case anyhow. Um,
1: Who's Plaid's most direct competitor?
2: Well, I think there was an old school company called Yodely that did a lot of this. And, uh, I don't know what, what, what's happened to them. I haven't tracked them. But, you know, I think the, the question that's interesting, I wonder how much of the uh, plaid's opportunity is outsourcing you know effectively technical skills the banks don't have yet and so over the next 5 or 10 years maybe their their expertise will move into building apis themselves um and so like that there's a really interesting opportunity with what's the end game here because carriers have never been able to demonstrate the ability to build software mm-hmm. um but banks have you know my my mobile apps for my you know first Re- first republic or chase are all pretty like usable they're, they're not you know they're functional i can get done what i need to get done
0: Yeah, but I think as the uh, financial service and kind of broader fintech market mature and become even more important in our lives, things like Plaid that stitch together various services and your own accounts will become all the more important. I think the Twilio example is great. Twilio's had an amazing 2018. The stock has exploded in value because- 5X. 5X. I mean, good. uh, It's Jeff Lawson, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic guy. Um, What they've done is put themselves at a a growth intersection. So as the market grows, they do better. And it strikes me that's Plaid. uh, If, again, all the math checks out and all the good things that we can't see behind the scenes are going well- they're at a great place to keep growing. And, and with this amount of money, and especially with Mary Meeker now on their board, who's leaving Kleiner. I think this was her last Kleiner deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a great pedigree behind the money, a great new board member. It just strikes me as an overall pretty bullish round that I can't get too mad about. Uh, it doesn't seem to be silly or whimsical. It seems to be pretty intelligent. So
1: well, I, I wish I understood the company better. Um, Forbes sort of explained it as plainly as possible, saying it helps developers embed a snippet of code within their apps that prompts users to input their banking information and then securely confirm it with the bank itself. But you know, right now we talk a lot about its banking customers: Acorns, Robinhood, Coinbase. But I think the idea, according to the company, is that it's targeting sort of a much bigger market. It's not just financial services that it has its eye on.
0: No, no, much more. I mean, everything money touches could the could be put through a plaid API in the future mm-hmm. if I understand the 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 possibility of this company, and that's a that's that's a lot of tam to play with. Yeah, well, and if it be uh, you know, the interesting the way I heard your
2: comments, Connie um, were uh, perhaps the uh, opportunities identity and a private identity off offering. So I just yeah. don't know what yeah. their, their roadmap is, but right. certainly things like Autho and um, uh, Okta and all these things are out there in the right. world that have been uh, kind of finding ways to sell B2B services for consumer experiences, right? And so they're not trying to make money off the consumer. They're really just trying to empower businesses to super, super accelerate themselves and be better, uh, build better customer facing products.
0: And Okta's had a great year as well, so far as I can tell, going through their last financial reporting. So it's a strong space. I think, I think everyone who's doing API based stuff or or SaaS based stuff is just having a pretty good end of the year. Yeah. You know, uh,
2: just thinking about it a little harder and sorry to dominate the mic. I don't know. No, it's fine. Um,
1: That's why you're here. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Make,
2: Make me feel comfortable. Well, thanks, Connie. <laughs> uh, I uh, um, do think one thing I'm interested in is uh, Twilio and Stripe, uh, if we want to look at two further along uh, examples of API companies, both actually have uh, – variable or marginal costs for every API call, right? So you have to pay a carrier something when you want to deliver a text message or, uh, you know, you have to pay for a phone number to be kept in the carrier's registry. So Twilio actually has cost, carrying costs for every single thing it does. Okay. Similarly, Stripe, if you ever want to make a transaction across any of the rails, you have to pay and have money tied up in those rails to, to prove your uh, prove your trustworthy. Uh I'm not 100 percent sure, and it's not obvious to me where Plaid would have uh, variable costs, and and uh, you know, and I wonder if that's something that uh, is is a meaningful difference in how that will play out for their future.
0: And for people who didn't quite track that, that means they can have higher gross margins because they have a lower cost to actually run their business, and therefore they can probably be a more profitable company on a per dollar revenue basis long term. That's fascinating, and that may be why they just had a 2.65 billion dollar valuation attached to them. Oh, and the 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 other side of that coin could also be that they have harder uh, uh they have a bigger challenge to extract
2: value over time because there is no marginal cost and there is uh you know kind of eventually uh good enough solutions that uh just undercut on price
1: Interesting. Well it's gonna be a lot
0: of fun, but they now have enough money. They almost have capital as an advantage. The kind of the, the soft bank approach, if you will. Two hundred fifty yeah. million dollars is a lot of money.
1: Well, also, you know, we we've been talking about these deals. This week there's just been a fire hose of these mega deals. Um and it does feel a little bit like everybody is saving up for this, you know, nuclear winter we keep talking about. But you know, the CEO of plaid told Forbes essentially that's exactly what we're doing <laughs> just in case this this you know things have been good for a long time I mean, What's someone's gonna case?
0: offer you a nine-figure check yeah. when the market's getting a little dicey and you're 11 years into a bull run i mean danny you're gonna take that every single time right why not put the exactly. money in the bank
3: and run defense for your own team <laughs> um but well, and you're gonna save the news for christmas right
0: oh yeah. merry christmas everybody <laughs> you're not fired we you know it's it.
3: like if you think about it we, we skip what like 25 nine-figure rounds uh, this week
0: it's uh, so we jokingly call these super giant rounds over at uh, over at my team, and we call things that are two hundred fifty million or bigger hypergiant using the, the celestial star scale for for how big these are. But I'm just blown away by how 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 blasé we are now about this. I mean, they just raised an entire Series B fund for themselves and uh, we're all like well that's kind of cool moving on to uh, Zymergen
1: <laughs> <Another huge laughs> I, I know I mean honestly it was very hard for us to figure out what we were going to talk about to, on today's show because I think there's been like 10 triple digit million deals you know like within the last couple of days anyway Zymergen is one of the more interesting ones it's a five year old company uh, based uh, out here in the Bay Area in Emeryville, California and it makes molecules basically for a wide array of customers and uses although it does not talk uh, about its customers but um, um, it just closed on a four hundred million dollar series C round, which is enormous. Uh, and it got uh, it was led by Softbank's vision Fund, which had participated in uh, a one hundred and thirty million dollar round that the company had raised. I think, 2016. zyrogen is really interesting, though. It uh, competes directly with another company called Ginkgo uh, Bioworks. And both of these companies are sort of, um, they're not selling consumer products. They're basically selling scientific expertise and creating genetically modified microbes for companies to create their own products. So a company might say, we have an idea of something. Um, here's a vial. <laughs> Turn it into this thing that we want. Um, these companies sort of work on that thing, and then they kind of hand it back to the company. Uh, so they can sort of develop it in their own labs. But um, I think ultimately the big idea is kind of to um, replace everything that's kind of petroleum based, which turns out to be basically everything that we can touch and feel our clothes, our golf bags, um, you know, obviously our, our uh, fuel. Uh, so there's tons of opportunity. And so both of these companies now raise a lot of money. I can't remember offhand how much Ginkgo uh Bioworks has raised, but it's also on the order of 430 million-ish altogether.
0: As I frantically Googled this I was getting, Connie was giving me the look of like, you better look that up. Um, Connie, Ginkgo right. Biorex, you're totally right. $429.1 million okay. to date. Right. God,
3: fragments. Connie, how do you remember this stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of annoyed at how close you were. <laughs> I have a lot of useless information in when, my brain. I guess, Equity, like, jealousy. Yeah, exactly. When I guess I'm like, it was a billion or three. You never know. But, um, but
1: it's interesting. The one company is a little bit more... Um, uh, it discloses a little bit more about some of its customers. Um, so Ginkgo, for example, had partnered, I think, last year with Bayer. It's making a, a nitrogen fertilizer. Um, but I think the companies are kind of having to overcome this sort of concern about... Um, Genetically modified organisms, which got a very bad rap thanks to Monsanto, you know, which was making pesticides and herbicides. And, and basically they're coming out and saying, look, there's a million really fun, cool, amazing things we can make. Uh, there's like, you know, our market opportunities are sort of endless um, and investors are buying that vision. Yeah,
0: I think it's pretty exciting. $400 million always gets my attention. But we were talking about this Bubba, before the show was on and you had a relatively easy way to explain what this actually does for most people. So can you re-give me that kind of like concise what the hell does this actually mean? Cause I heard what Connie said, microbes and, and things, and I didn't actually get it. Yeah. So the, the simple, uh, the, the
2: simple answer and, and actually as disclosure, when I was a part of the DFJ venture team, uh, we invested in one of the early rounds of Zymergen. And so, oh, uh, the team is fantastic and, uh, got to, to see, see them, get to see them build such a special company is, is really something that's, uh, once in a, a career type of situation. So it's, it's super cool to, uh, see their progress, but, uh, now that, that disclosure is out of the way, I would say what they do is they take existing, uh, they help companies that have existing processes mm-hmm. uh, become more efficient, uh, both either uh, faster, cheaper, better, harder, stronger, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the ways they do that, they are very guarded about as 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 Connie had kind of touched on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I won't touch on that more. But I think broadly speaking, the cool thing about them, Ginkgo Bioworks uh, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff in this space is it's actually... Uh, the combination of biology and software is mm-hmm. finally really kind of starting to pay off. And and the the first place I think a, a lot of that's helping uh, is automating. Right now, like literally the way people build stuff in biology world is they have a human go and take a pipette, which is like a glass tube, <laughs> take some liquid, move it over to another glass tube <laughs> right. and then let their thumb go mm-hmm. um, so that the liquid fall out. And uh, what Zymergen, what uh, Ginkgo Bioworks, I think there's another one, Emerald Therapeutics. These guys are doing basically robots that do all of that faster, stronger, better, harder. And so it's a pretty cool uh, first step in seeing technology uh, change biology and actually create maybe uh, feedback cycles as fast as software companies have, right? Uh, well, I don't want to see any of these companies move fast and break things, uh, it certainly <laughs> is nice to know that you can take what maybe would have taken six weeks and compress it down to two days so that you can understand what needs to be fixed. And I think that's a, that's a really exciting trend, especially when you uh, package that up with cloud computing and the ability to actually uh, read all the DNA molecules by sending it to an Amazon cloud with 10,000 clusters in an hour instead of having a high performance computing cluster if you're only at the, you know, Stanford's of the world. That was a lot out of my mouth. So I'm going to sit
0: back. No, there. I, I I liked that. I, I to me, it still seems a bit like we're not quite there yet, but we're going to get there. And I didn't know we were that close. My, my joke before was that this sounds like um, that Michael Crichton novel, Prey, with the, the little mi- the um, Fractally put together like micro robots. Anyways, I, that's not <laughs> what this Nanotech, is. I think. Nanotech. Thank you. I was drowning for that word. Um, but this sounds like that. But the 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 real version, the helpful version, not the scary thriller kind of version. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> it's cool to see stuff that was a you know a joke in a novel become real and useful in a couple of decades.
1: Yeah, but to your point, that's what they sort of stressed. I talked to the CEO yesterday, Joshua Hoffman, and he was saying that you know, bottom line, what they're trying to do is help increase their customers' yields and improve their bottom lines.
0: Anyways, that is all the time we have. So we are going to bounce for this week. We will be back in seven days. And Bubba, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. That was a lot of fun. So fun to see you. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Picavet, And we will see you all right here next week.